This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Hello and welcome, everybody, to a new episode of the Urban Political. Um, my name is Markus Kipp, and I'm joined uh, by Ross Beveridge. And today, we're talking about uh, housing struggles in Berlin. Uh, it's a second part. It's a follow-up part uh, to our previous episode, which talked about the rent cap legislation and its overturning uh, with Andre Holm. And today, we're talking, focusing on the um, grassroots campaign uh, called Deutsche Wohnen und Co. Enteignen, uh, a campaign to socialize corporately owned housing in Berlin. And we're talking uh, to Joanna Kusiak, who is a research fellow in urban studies at King's College, Cambridge, and a visiting scholar at the Georg Simmel Center in Berlin at the Humboldt University. Um, she is also an activist at uh, this mentioned grassroots campaign, the Deutsche Wohn und Co. Enteignen. Hello. Hi, Joanna. Uh, great to have you. Um, I'll turn it over to you with the first question uh, to please tell us what this grassroots, grassroots initiative Deutsche Wohn und Co. Enteignen campaign is. And if you could talk about its aims and uh, strategies or tactics. So the initiative Deutsche Wohnen and Co-Enteignen, which literally means expropriate Deutsche Wohnen, um, and Deutsche Wohnen uh, is just a name of the biggest privately owned stock-listed housing corporation in Berlin that owns um, over 100,000 apartments, just this one. So the campaign expropriate Deutsche Wohnen and Co and other corporations like that attempts to basically tackle housing crisis at its root and the root is property relations. So instead, last, last week, I know there was an episode of a rent cap um, and the initiative Expropriate Deutsche Wohnen is more about not just regulating rents, but really changing the, the basis of housing relation by deprivatizing housing that used to be public, but was then privatized in the course of the early 2000s, and therefore make sure it's uh, long-term in the public domain, so, um, so that the, the struggle for, for better rents is not just reactive, but uh, that people can actively shape the housing politics. Um, so maybe tell us a little bit about the history of the Deutsche Wohnen und Co. and Eichmann. Um Mm -hmm. So the, um, the initiative uh, Deutsche Wohnen und Co. Enteignen really quite organically uh, grew from a long-term engagement, long-term history of tenant activism in Berlin. Berlin is a rental city. Over 80% of housing is rental housing. And it also has this um, history of tenants mobilizing as a political force. I mean, suffice it to say that the first tenant movements in Berlin date back to 19th century. And of course, throughout Berlin's history in West Berlin and East Berlin, we, we have had squatting movements, tenant mobilizations. So tenants have always been a, a political force in Berlin. And uh, especially the last 10, 15 years, um, the rents in Berlin were growing much, not only much quicker than anywhere else in Germany, 
but in fact, relatively speaking, in I think in 2018, the, the housing prices in Berlin grew um, the most in the whole world in the big cities. It was a big headlines in, in many news. Of course, that doesn't mean that housing in Berlin is more expensive than in London, but relatively speaking, the difference between what it used to cost and what it costs now was enormous um, and affected the population a lot also because uh, Berlin is not a rich city in terms of the earning power of its population. And um, why, why, did, why was this suddenly deep? I mean, on the one hand, uh, we have to do with the usual unfortunately usual processes of financialization of housing, of speculation with housing, of international investors using housing the way that gold used to be used, namely as a storage for capital, as a, as a mechanism for, for capital uh, increase and in speculation. Um, but at the same time, specifically within Berlin, um, the, the fact that beyond regular landlords, uh, we all of a sudden had this corporate stock-listed landlords. That really changed the game. Um, because Berlin, um, having this history of, uh, of tenant movements, also, relatively speaking, when we compare in Europe, or especially when we compare with the Anglo-Saxon context, it always uh, prided itself with uh, reasonably good tenant protections. And, uh, and there were always ways to try to legally fight back through the, through the tenants associations, which are basically in its future legal associations. However, when, when these big corporations started buying, uh, or like, you know, the, when the big housing portfolios were privatized to this corporation, the game has really changed because of the change in scale. Because as much as uh, if we think of the regular landlords, let's say someone who owns one or two tenant houses um, and in, in, in the basics still considers tenant as his client, the corporate, ten, the corporate landlord is, plays a completely different game. First, because these are stock-listed companies, this, and that means that the primary market for them is a financial market. What they primarily care is uh, that their shareholders get returns on the capital. So in this sense, these are the shareholders and not the tenants that are the clients of those, uh, of those landlords, corporations. And that means that in some sense, no matter what the dynamic on the housing market, they have to push the rents up and they have to push the, the, the costs down. And it's not because, I don't know, they're not nice, they're evil people, it's just structural. And I think this is important to acknowledge it. This is, uh, this is a structural feature of, uh, of a stock-listed landlord, that the housing dynamic, uh, the dynamics of the housing market is completely secondary. Of course, it helps them that there's also high demand on housing, but just by virtue of, um, of the markets that they operate on, the financial market, they have to keep pushing the rents up. At the same time, uh, they became way more effective in pushing the rents up because of their scale. So first, these corporations have their own legal departments where they hire a very well-paid lawyers whose day job is technically to find always new loopholes in the tenant laws. 
and therefore the old ways of protecting uh, yourself as a tenant stop working or the game was really apt because uh, all of a sudden you really have professional lawyers on the other side that really try to make sure these rent regulations are not as effective as it used to be. But also um, they have different scale, which means that they can influence different benchmarks. For example, one of the typical benchmark in Berlin is so-called Mieterspiegel, so like a rent mirror, which is a benchmark that says what is the average rent in the city or in the given area of the city. And if a corporation like Deutsche Wohnen or Vonovia Achilles, if they really own thousands of apartments in the same area, that means that if they increase rents in all of them, even a little bit, they influence the whole rent mirror. So they can also change, again, change the, the whole game of, uh, of how, um, and the, the dynamics of, of the rent prices. And so um, after years of, different initiatives trying to, to protect tenants, where the activists were also gaining a lot of legal knowledge on the way. Also through, through early experiences with public referenda and uh, well the mechani mechanisms of direct democracy. In some sense, the activists realized that if we only focus on the tenant law and on the rent regulations, in some sense, with those corporations, we will always be on the defensive. Because even if we come up with a new solution, and that was exactly the, the case with Mietendeckel too. I mean, Andre surely mentioned last week that, you know, even, even if there's a new new tool like a Mietendeckel, then the, the landlords, especially corporate landlords, immediately find a way to, to go around it, to question it legally, to basically find a way to steal the still get their profits and therefore the only way to really tackle the housing crisis at its roots and for the long term is to change the property relations in the city and to revert this um, really harmful process of privatization of housing because a lot of housing that we're now talking about in the context of this expropriation is housing that used to belong to public domain that used to be municipal or used to be this, uh, at least um, belong to this post-industrial housing, the big industry company in Germany, they also used to provide uh, housing for the workers. But this were, this were often housing uh, that really was built as social housing. This includes also famous architectural gems in Berlin, the social housing from the 20s that literally it, it, it is written on the wall that this is a housing that, uh, that is for social purpose and now it's being used for profit. So, um, so the, the big question was, is it even possible? How is it possible to get so radical? And of course, initially, everyone thought it's one of the typical radical ideas. We all know that's what needs to be done, but it's so radical that it seems impossible until a group of activists um, found Article 15 of the German Constitution. And Article 15 of the German Constitution is a, well, it's, it's, a, it's a Grundrecht, it's a basic law within the, within the German Constitution that says that it is possible to socialize, and socialize is this word we're coming back to again and again, 
land, um, crucial branches of industry or crucial natural resources um, for the purpose of common good. And the legal context is that this uh, should serve the, 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 the good of the society. And uh, this is a very interesting legal clause because it's a clause that is there in the constitution. So as I said, it's a basic right. It's been there since the constitution was written, but somehow it, it was completely forgotten. It was never used since the post-war period, like since the constitution was written. There's no precedence and many lawyers even implicitly it's not even explicitly because no one was talking about it, but many lawyers even implicitly considered it some sort of a dead clause. And then some activists mentioned it. And at first, as far as I know, even within the activist environments, people were skeptical, like, is it really possible? But, um, but then it turned out it is. I mean, there, there were the, the legal concept of how it would be possible to expropriate or socialize this housing was first developed by a group of non-lawyer activists, which I think for me as a researcher is also a very interesting way of um, reclaiming the law from the grassroots up. Um, and then when they showed this first draft, first project of how it could work to the lawyers, even lawyers were surprised that actually this is all possible. Legally speaking, this is all possible. And that's, in a way, is the biggest surprise of Berlin politics, I think, in, in decades or since, uh, since 1989. Thanks, uh, Johanna. So uh, before we get on to talking about exactly uh, what it is um, uh, you want to do with this initiative, uh, is could you um, tell us a little bit more about uh, uh, the 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 origins origins of it and what exactly who exactly the co-war what, what exactly uh, the the object is here and kind of like in a nutshell in terms of how many how many flats are there I think you touched on it already uh, and a little bit perhaps about the the influence of other um, social movements or uh, campaigns ongoing in Berlin I mean I was wondering a little bit about you know there's obviously there's lots of campaigns against gentrification against uh, house, uh, rising rental prices but then this the campaigns around remunicipalization of water and energy I wonder if, 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 if there's an influence there and even in terms of people being involved in it who were involved in these earlier campaigns definitely definitely as I mentioned before I see there's a one important eigenen as a, as a step in the long history of Berlin's urban and social movements. And if you think in terms of a people, most of the core people, I mean, currently the initiative is also really growing, but most of the core people, especially the core people that were at the beginning, um, they, uh, they have a history of engaging with all kinds of different initiatives, uh, ones that include housing, like, like for example, Koti and Co or Meet Volksentscheid um, from, from years before, or Stadt von Unten. Um, then there are people who have experience with previous referenda, like the one about Tempelhof, uh, the, the airport that uh, is now turned into a public space. So um, definitely this is possible because there's been a lot of gathering knowledge on the way and a lot of politicization. And I, I think it is crucial also because um, what is special, I think, about this initiative, but also about maybe Berlin social and urban movements 
in general that this is not just a typical political protest movement. This is a movement that actively engages with the law. And that, well, I like to think about it, that it is a movement that is at the same time pro-systemic and anti-systemic. I mean, it's anti-systemic in, in, in a way of this basic claim, expropriate, let's change the structure that that uh, was produced by capitalism let's expropriate this big corporate landlords let's break the domination of capital but at the same time it's pro-systemic because it really actively tries to engage with the possibilities within the existing system um, rather than wait till the revolution happens, uh, so to say, and really create new institutions, because it's not just about expropriating these corporate landlords, but it's also about creating a new public institution that would manage this uh, housing in a new and democratic way. And uh, we're talking about a lot of apartments. Um, it is currently estimated that um, this would affect around 200, uh, at least at least 250,000 apartments in Berlin. Uh, I say at least and around because to be honest, no one knows it for sure. Also because of uh, how financial capital operates in the city. Namely, um, there are some corporations like Deutsche Von, Achilles, Bonovia, that are the properties uh, that we know about it. And it's clear that they're this big, big corporations. But there are also corporations that use shell companies uh, and shell subsidiaries to hide their own scales. And uh, one prominent example is PES International, it's a British, um, I mean, global, but uh, global uh, corporation, but um, that's, uh, that is owned by, by a prominent British family. Um, that um, that uh, that uh, owns also like thousands of apartments, but they don't operate under their own name. They operate through these small subsidiary shell companies that are most of them that are taxed and formally based in, in Luxembourg. Um, and it was through a journalistic uh, investigation that uh, Berlin has got to know who is behind uh, these properties, because they were known in Berlin as a so-called Briefkastenfirmen. This means um, postbox companies, because often from a tenant's perspective, you don't really know who your landlord is. You have a name and you have an address of a postbox in Luxembourg, but it's not even like a formal headquarters, but just a postbox. And, and there was... Um, for some friend activist in Berlin, someone photographed this postbox. There's literally a physical mailbox with, um, I don't know, several, uh, at least 60 or 70 stickers with names of this company, which in a physical way illustrates that we're talking big capital here that uh, hides itself under sm smaller share companies. And uh, this uh, this might not be a singular case. So in the process, uh, we might find out it's, it's more apartments, but this is at least 250,000 apartments in the city. So this is a very significant portfolio, and this is the scale that allows politically to really imagine housing in a new way, which includes also ecological politics, sustainable politics, um, renewable energy, solar panels on the rooftop, social policies, um, making sure that housing is evenly distributed without discrimination, that, that housing needs are met. 
that old people have accessible housing and so on and so on. So this is really an opportunity, again, not just to expropriate corporations, but really to reimagine the distribution of housing in Berlin in a way that is more equitable and ecologically sustainable. Thanks for that. So uh, these, these companies were um, previously public, and I think they, they were privatized, so many of them in the early 2000s by... So I think Social Democrat uh, left party coalition government, and the the interesting or one of the interesting things about uh, uh, the initiative is that it doesn't just want to take them back into the hands of the state. It has a, a different kind of vision of how housing um, housing should be owned and managed and kind of co produced. Could could you uh, describe to us the the plans? You know the vision the vision there uh, of of the initiative. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I, I think for the English speaker, one way to to think about what they're trying to do is like on the one hand, you could you could think it's like nationalization from the grassroots up in the sense that you want to expropriate this property, but it does uh, does not happen by the top down state. It really happens by the grassroots movement. Uh, so it's coming from below. And therefore, actually, it is not nationalization, but it's socialization. And socialization is, um, I know it's not a word that is known uh, to an English speaking audience, but um, it is a concept of a commonly owned property. And this concept includes not just ownership and not just the fact that it is publicly owned, but also ways of management. Uh, so it needs to be democratically managed in a, in a way that is participatory. So it cannot be just owned by the state in this very classical way where, where you have this centrally, um, centrally managed state companies that... Um, I criticize it that often identified in a popular imagination, public properties often identified with this really inflexible, uh, slightly authoritarian, top-down state companies. This is not what uh, the initiative has in mind here. What we have in mind is basically a new publicly-owned institution, uh, the legal form um, is in German Anstalt öffentliche Recht. Again, there's no direct translation of uh, of what would it be because it's a it's a quirky its own German legal form. But uh, what this legal form allows is uh, definitely to to build in several legal protections within its form that um, that pro that that protect from overusing the power of management that makes sure there's democratic control of the, of the decision-making process that um, that also there's a possibility and definitely that's what the movement's striving for of blocking the possibility of future privatization so the idea is to really now this time round keep this housing long term in the public domain and um, the idea is to, uh, a mixture between representation and participation. So uh, this this is a lot of housing and it's uh, spread around Berlin. So there would be some district councils uh, and there would be uh, there would be main board of uh, of this new housing body. And the idea, which is maybe slightly similar to, to how it is in English context with community land trust, is that the decision power is um, is divided between 
on the one hand, representatives of the tenants who are living in this property, but also representatives of Berlin populations who are not living in this housing. And this is important because in this way, um, you can prevent it from becoming a club, you know, which, which sometimes happens to, to, let's say, some of the cooperatives that they're great places to live for people who are already members, but it's impossible for anyone else to, to get into this uh, privilege of, of housing that they offer. So the idea is that because it affects so much uh, of the city that also people who are not living there, but... Uh, our Berliners also would have influence in what's going on, and also representatives from Berlin Senate and representatives from the management of this company, administrative workers. So, um, so there would be this balance between having uh, having a representation to to make the decisions, but also having the instruments of of direct democracy. I also encourage because, of course, there's not um, there's only so much details one can one can tell in the format of a podcast. But I also encourage um, to visit, especially those who speak German, the webpage of Deutsche Wohnen because there is um, there's a brochure there um, called Vergesellschaftung that describes in particular in detail the uh, the institutional structure of this new housing company. And I myself also uh, try to describe it a little bit more in detail in, in an English article that's available online. So um, I, I think this is really interesting because this is um, this is a way of experimenting. Now, now speaking more as a scholar, this is a way of in, in experimenting um, with a new property form in the spirit of uh, of, of Elinor Ostrom where you really think the ownership and the management together that you, I mean, Ostrom's thesis basically is that to really have commons or forms of common property to work, you need to um, basically think together the, or design together modes of ownership and modes of management of this property, that management is a part of property design. And that's uh, definitely the case here with the initiative. Um, let's talk a bit about the um, current political moment and uh, we've heard in the previous podcast well that the rent cap legislation um, has been overturned that was uh, reducing um, the rents for hundreds of thousands of Berliners and was um, protecting against excessive rents. Um, so, so, so this um, law has been overturned, and we've already heard from Andre Holm uh, last week that um, the rent cap legislation was in part also uh, justified publicly by the Social Democrats as as a way to prevent expropriation or socialization campaigns for for from happening. So. Now, with the current situation um, of the rent cap being overturned, tell us what the current prospect or the current uh, campaign of the Deutsche Wohnen and Co. and Eichmann stands at and is up, up against or up for. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting to think expropriation and meet and decker together. Um, in a sense, we we see uh, Mietendecke, the, the rent cap, almost as a 
it's emerges initially as a side effect of our initiative because the rent cap was proposed by activists uh, already years before i mean before it was actually implemented and um, the, the government, especially SPD, always argued that rent cap is too radical. This is not, um, yeah, this is a basically a communist solution is often an easy way to describe it. And then uh, when the, in 2019, especially beginning of 2019, um, where the expropriation initiative really got a lot of media attention, the first surveys appeared showing that basically um, in some surveys, um, slightly over 50% of Berliners supported. So uh, this is uh, this is amazing. This is um, for, for a radical initiative like this. I think this surprised even the activists themselves. How um, yeah, how how ready Berlin it is for that uh, in some sense. And that of course uh, scared the real estate lobby, and uh, it scared the real estate lobby within the parties too. Um, and uh, definitely rent cap was seen as reaction to this. I myself, as part of my fieldwork research, I interviewed one of the lawyers that participated in designing the Mietendecker. And in this interview, she was quite open about the fact that she also sees Mietendecker as a side effect of the expropriation initiative. So um, we didn't, there was never the, the aim of the initiative, but I think the initiative helped uh, the Mietendecker to arise. I think it's still good that it was there for a year, especially that it coincided with COVID. Um, and it, in a way it showed how important it is. But now, of course, the fact that it was legally over 10, in some sense, I mean, on the one hand it is, and it has to be said, it is tragic, especially in the COVID year, because uh, people who partly lost their income, they also now, uh, have to pay back the the, uh, the debts that all of a sudden they have uh, towards the landlord. Um, at the same time, um, this this decision really shows um, that there is no sustainable alternative to expropriation. And the funny fact in this case is that from the very beginning, it was fairly clear that although socialization of housing, expropriation slash socialization of housing seems more radical, it is actually legally less controversial than the rent cap. That's how uh, law often operates. This is because of how competencies are divided, but this is also because of the fact that socialization is really grounded in the German constitution, which is in Germany is called the basic law. The constitution is called the basic law. And, uh, and in, in this sense, it's, uh, it's almost like the strongest possible legal base for something uh, to happen on, on some level. Whereas, uh, so, this, so this is one thing. And the second thing that the fact that this article 15 of the constitution was never used before also means that there are no precedents. So it's really like a legally open tabula rasa. Whereas with rent cap, of course, there's, there's all kinds of precedents of who can, who can do what. And Again, there's also this issue, Andre surely explained it in detail in the last episode. Uh, the issue of the Mietendeckel ultimately was about competencies. So it was not that Mietendeckel as such wouldn't be possible. It is that it was Land Berlin that in this particular circumstance seemed not to be legally, um, 
should not have a legal power to do it because it was already similar thing was already done on the uh, similar but less radical thing was done on the on the national level this again is not the case in terms of socialization because on the federal level there's no legislation of socialization it is legally quite clear that Berlin as a land in the federal system would have legal powers to do it so uh, there is no problem with uh, no potential problem with uh, expropriation having similar problems as the rent cap had legally it's much it's more radical but it's more legally safe uh, Jana, can you uh, tell us a bit more about the current uh, situation in, in which the um, signatures are being collected and and the referendum is is being organized uh, tell us a bit more about the process and um, where it's, um, what, what its outlooks are. So as, um, as we're doing this recording in April, we are really halfway in the process of collecting signature. Um, the law foresees that uh, for this referendum to happen, uh, the initiative needs to collect um, around 170,000 valid signatures within four months. And the countdown of this four months started in February and goes till roughly mid-June. Um, and we are already in a, uh, in a halfway. Um, we have collected more than half of the needed signatures, although we're still in the process, or the, the Senate is still in the process of uh, proving the validity, what is the exact number of the valid signatures. This is um, an issue in Berlin because, uh, legally speaking, on the only valid signatures are one by German citizens who are registered in Berlin. And Berlin, and this is in itself a political problem that uh, we also speak to because uh, Berlin is a fairly cosmopolitan international city, which means a lot of people who are affected by the housing situation do not happen to have Berlin citizenship. And they often sign, um, nonetheless, they sign the petition as well as a political gesture. And we also collect and count the signatures uh, even if they're legally not valid, uh, just to make a point that there's this whole population in Berlin of, of Berlin citizens, of uh, tenants that just do not happen to be German citizens. So this, um, but this way, this way another, like uh, what I wanted to say, that it seems that uh, the collection of signatures is doing very well, um, especially if we consider the fact that uh, this first two months of collecting signature, we have to do a strict lockdown because of COVID. The weather has not been um, too good, which also, of course, makes it difficult. There's less people outside. And nonetheless, uh, the signature collection process is going well. And I think especially since the legal decision um, about Mietendecker, we also see more anger and more political mobilization because people are frustrated uh, with um, yeah with the with the situation on the housing market so they really counted on Mietendecker many people counted on Mietendecker Mietendecker has made the situation easier in the times of corona and now they are frustrated so the more willing they are to to go the radical way so I think in in some sense it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it increases the, the, the unfortunate legal decision about the Mietendecker, definitely increases the sense of urgency uh, around expropriation. 
so you are uh, so uh, I don't know if you covered it already, but uh, so you need to collect these signatures. It's a slightly complicated process, isn't it? So you need to. There's certain hurdles you have to sort of jump over, and uh, at the moment you're kind of trying to get over the hurdle to to do what to present uh, uh, to force a debate in in the Berlin Senate and the Berlin government about uh, um, this uh, uh, this initiative. Is is that the step that we're at now? And that would then force then some kind of legislation ultimately on on your initiative so so what would happen is that once we collect uh, enough valid signatures then uh, it will be a referendum would be organized and in terms of dates currently the way it looks like um, it is very probable that this referendum would happen on the same day as the Bundestag election this is again great news because um, typically with referenda, the problem of referenda is not getting enough yes votes, but it's uh, it's about getting enough people to participate and to get the, the, the quorum. And of course, if, if the referendum is on the day where people anyway go to vote for the Bundestag election, we could expect that there will be a high turnout uh, for voters. So again, this is uh, from this perspective, uh, this is looking good. And then let's assume hypothetically that uh, that everything goes well, that the signatures are collected, the referendum happens, um, and people enough people vote yes. So Berliners decide, yes, let's socialize this housing then it will be up to Berlin Senate to propose to write a law that basically enforces the socialization because uh, it still needs to happen for a law and uh, according to article 15 such law still needs to be well, written by, by Berlin's government um, and in this respect referendum is, is not legally binding in the sense that the socialization doesn't happen automatically just by virtue of the results of a referendum. But referendum is, of course, politically binding. It, it did not happen in the history of Berlin, in particular, that, uh, um, that the direct democracy's strongest mechanism, which is the referendum, was used and then the, the government dares to <laughs> not... Uh, but not stick to its result. Of course, that would still mean there would be a process of intense political negotiation about what is the exact shape of this law, how this law is written. There's a lot of legal technicalities always in the game, and surely that would not be an easy negotiation. The initiative also proposed its own project of, of such law that is available also online. Uh, and uh, yeah. So there, there will be this whole legal discussion. And the second big legal discussion that would happen after the referendum, uh, after people win the referendum, is the question of compensation. And this is, of course, a very important part of the current debate. Namely, um, from a legal point of view, it's clear that expropriating uh, this corporation would mean that uh, the city of Berlin also needs to compensate them. However, it is uh, not legally predetermined how high this compensation would be. So from the purely legal point of view, compensation could be anywhere from one euro to let's say one euro beyond the market price. Uh, this is important because this, this, is, this definitely 
cannot legally, they would be really legally questionable to compensate on the market prices, as it as it's sometimes happened with a regular expropriation where you um, whatever buy something to, to build a highway, because legally then this would not count as socialization. The idea of socialization is really to uh, to 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 break the quasi monopoly of a private big scale owner for the good of the society, and therefore just buy back on on market price would not count as socialization. So the only thing that is legally clear is that the compensation would be below the market prices, but then that can mean anything. As I said, like one euro is also you know it doesn't seem politically probable, but uh, we can also think back to the time where very attractive properties in formerly East Germany were privatized for one Deutsche Mark symbolically. So it's not that there are not historical precedents uh, for it. And then there's many different calculations of how much this compensation could be. And it is really a political decision because for the, for the compensation, again, there would be uh, a new law that would need to be drafted by the Senate. And so this would be a political decision to make. And as it is with political decision, it also depends a lot on different pressures. So there surely will be pressure from real estate lobby to make this compensation very high. But uh, there surely also will be a lot of pressure from, from Berlin citizen to make sure that it does not break the city's budget. So um, yes, so the, but that's, that's one of the big discussions in this discussion. Um, is often used by the by the opponents of the initiative who try to scare off um, the potential supporters by saying that such compensation would need to be super expensive and this would break the city budget. This uh, this really does not need to. Be, this this is not the case. Uh, A because uh, it does not need to be that high, and B because it will be probably financed with um, with uh, with credit that would be in the long term repaid. Uh, with the income from rents from the socialist apartments, because even if these apartments will be back in public hands, and even if this means that the rents in them will be uh, kept at the reasonably low level, this way or not that these apartments still bring in income, and this income would not be profit, because this would be a non-profit uh, operated uh, housing company, but precisely this income would be used on the one hand uh, to modernize existing housing stock, on the other hand to build new housing stock, and this is also part of the idea to make sure to use this uh, income from rents to, to keep increasing the public housing stock in Berlin, but also uh, you can use it to, to repay the, um, to, to repay the, the credit that, um, and also uh, yeah, and also to to modernize to to improve the quality of this housing. Uh, I mean, a lot of um, so a lot of the areas uh, we've covered um, in the last hour seem quite specific to to Germany. We think about the, the legal aspects there, and also this process of direct democracy, this referendum uh, um, possibility, which you don't have in other places. Um, but what? What do you think uh, uh, initiatives in other parts of the world um, might take from what's happening in Berlin and particularly in relation to the, uh, uh, the socialization of housing movement? 
Well, I think the Berlin Initiative is, uh, you know, in some sense, a wonderful practical realization of the principle of uh, think globally, act locally, uh, because um, on the one hand, this initiative is because it, it runs through law is very specific because law is always specific to, uh, to given jurisdiction. At the same time, the property in question is global. I mean, if you think who are the shareholders of, of those corporations, that the financialization is the usual suspect. You have BlackRock, Blackstone, different uh, international funds. So it is not even on that level, on this direct property level, this is not just purely Berlin matter. And there's, uh, there's an international capital uh, behind it. And if, if this uh, international capital, if the housing stock owned by international capital is expropriated in Berlin, this still creates a wonderful precedence and probably the first case in the world of this scale where grassroots initiatives, local grassroots initiative, really manages to break the power of the big capital. And this opens the whole new world of possibilities. And while, of course, the German constitution is valid only in Germany and certain legal conditions or even legal and political conditions uh, are not directly transplantable from one place to another, this would really change the global imagination about what is possible and also why this uh, this laws might not exist in other places law is also a function of uh, of politics and uh, there would be definitely that that could uh, start also push for new legislation of uh, of different kinds that would differ in detail but that would have similar intention in mind i'm sure plus i think it encourages um, I think on the on the more abstract level, I think what this initiative does is really encourages in political movements uh, movements everywhere to seek solutions in places that well maybe are not immediately obvious, because uh, again you're speaking as a as a scholar and the, one of the main theme of my research is. Uh, these questions of politics and law and to which extent uh, law can be um, can be used and appropriated for, for the purposes of progressive politics, um, knowing that law is in its origins and its functioning, uh, well, in some sense, a, a very conservative institution. Uh, but um, still, it, as much as neoliberalism uses legal technicalities to push ahead its own agendas of privatization of financialization, in principle, similar strategic move can be achieved from also by, by a grassroots socially minded initiative. Uh, this is of course not, not easy, but uh, easy thing, but it's possible. And this initiative illustrate that this is possible. I'd like to hear a bit about the opponents of uh, this campaign, because surely there are plenty. Um, and uh, could you tell us a bit about their uh, main lines of attack uh, against this initiative and what is to be expected from them, maybe? Of course, I mean, I think uh, quite unquestionably the main opponent of the initiative is a real estate lobby. And this, uh, this that operates on, on different scales. So on, on one hand, we have these corporations themselves, of course, that um, 
that are trying to defend themselves. Then we have the the real estate lobbyists and lobbyist moves that try to influence what the dynamics of the parties and the dynamics of political decisions. And then we have a global capital that, as I explained, is involved in all this. And I think one of the interesting examples of how the power tools of global capital are being mobilized um, we saw also in 2019 again after after the surveys were published that showed that uh, more than 50 percent of berliners support the expropriation initiative um, very quickly the international rating agency moody published a paper that basically threatens to downgrade berlin um, as a place for investment and in this in this rating system, if Berlin dares to expropriate those corporations. And interestingly enough, so we as initiative, we or one of our activists bought this paper because of course it's not it's, it's behind firewall, it's quite expensive. Uh, but we spent this 400 euros to see uh, this paper and literally it's not even a full page. It's basically around three paragraphs. Um, with no argumentation whatsoever. So this is not an analysis. This is a clearly a purely a PR move. And it worked as a PR move because, of course, it, it made headlines in many local newspapers. Berlin will be downgraded. Berlin will be downgraded. But um, it is clear that this is not based. I mean, once you see what's written there, this is not based on any analysis. This is a power move by, uh, by global capital that felt threatened by this possibility of expropriation. And to be honest, the more initiative gains steam now and the more the vision of expropriation becomes real, the more I expect that uh, we will see more and more of those moves, where it's not only the Berlin uh, community, but also international capital and international institution of, of power that uphold the power of capital will be finding different ways through already through, through black PR, for probably trying to discredit uh, individual activists and so on and so on. I, I think it would be stupid to expect that this would all go smoothly without some major power backlash because we're really talking billions and billions of euros, 250,000 apartments. This is really huge amount of capital that uh, that could be lost for the private profit. And they're not gonna they're not gonna be happy about it. They're not gonna give it back easily. So um, so yeah, these are the opponents, and therefore it's also uh, important to. Um, to build support and uh, so uh, now that we said about the opponents it's also important to, to say a little bit more about the supporters of the initiative because it's not it, it is this grassroots initiative with lots of individual supporters um, but there's also more and more institutional supporters that um, that join us and uh, just to name a few I mean this is more than that but the unions, uh, Verdi, for example, one of the biggest uh, German unions, is uh, now officially supporting and collecting uh, signatures with us. Also, because from their perspective, I mean, not only it is important for workers of all kinds to have access to cheap housing, but also these big corporations um, do not treat their own workers too well. They don't uh, hold up to the union negotiated tariffs and so on and so on. So the union supporters. The, the tenants organization supports us. Some ecological movements uh, are supporting us also because uh, shifting 
increase amount of housing to the public domain also opens new way of um, adjusting the city to um, to better tackle the climate crisis and this is partly also happening in the municipally owned housing in berlin that in a coordinate uh, coordinated way um, you could imagine mounting solar panels uh, on this amount of rooftop, rooftops in berlin to create uh, as we call it tenant electricity and uh, and so and also to modernize i mean the the uh, in berlin till now often thermal modernizations uh, of so so insulation of buildings had a really bad name among the tenants because it was often used as a pretext to get rid of tenants or massively increase rents. Uh, if housing would be in the public domain, this would be um, the, the ecological modernization of housing would also be possible on the biggest scale and in a way that uh, that is fair to the tenants. So therefore also ecological movements support us. A lot of local businesses support us, little shops, because again, we focus on housing, but most of these buildings also have some, some sort of uh, shops or service spaces down, uh, downstairs on the, on the ground floor. And um, through increasing of private rents, we also saw in Berlin, how a lot of small businesses, local shops, local cafes, uh, traditional places uh, have been gradually disappearing and rep being replaced by, by chain supermarkets, ch bank filiales, and so on. And therefore, um, little shop owners uh, tend to also be interested in, in supporting us. So there's really um, citywide mobilization of uh, people uh, who I think also become more and more aware that what always made Berlin special in terms of atmosphere, in terms of its very urban promise of offering opportunities for experimentation, that all is being threatened by, by this radically rising rents. Um, and even if, if one thinks from more surprising angles, not only from this classical socially minded actors, but even if we think from the perspective of startups and business development, the point is that to, to start a startup, you need to be able to risk. And if people do not have stable living situation, if they, uh, if they have to, let's say, buy housing and live on mortgage, they're less willing to take a risk. So all kinds of both artistic and business experimentation that Berlin made possible is being threatened by, uh, by rising rents. So I think people are really becoming aware that the socialization is a unique historical opportunity to save the promise of Berlin. So... Last but not least, uh, Joanna, if you could maybe tell us a bit uh, or reflect on your position as both a researcher on the Deutsche Wohnen und Co. and Eichmann, as well as an activist. So how, how do you combine these two positions and how, how, how do you make engagements in either field uh, fruitful or important for the other? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for this question. I mean, in some sense, uh, maybe by, by way of an anecdote, I almost consider the initiative Deutsche Wohnen in Eignen as a 
as a present I got for my research because um, I've been uh, I've been researching this intersection of law and uh, policy, urban politics, urban movement for a while. I'm originally from Warsaw, and I used to be an, also an urban activist in Warsaw. So I also I have a history of, of trying to handle research and activism together, or trying to research on on the topics that are let's say at least politically relevant and. Uh, my research on Warsaw mostly showed and explored in the context of, of property restitution in Warsaw, how legal technicalities were used to take over public property and exploit it for profit. And uh, as I, as the, 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 the core of this research was about how these legal technicalities can be employed for political purposes, in this case for, for neoliberal, um, let's say, or, or profit-oriented purposes, I started to think, okay, from like to see these legal technicalities more as a neutral tools and start to wonder, could we really do the other way around? I mean, if we can manipulate rhetorically with these legal argumentations, could we try to do, is it viable within the legal system to try to do it otherwise and use these different legal technicalities to, um, yeah, to, to uh, push ahead more progressive social agendas. And uh, initially when I was writing the project application for, for Cambridge, what I had in mind was indeed researching Berlin and, and more the tenant association, how they legally argue in the courts. And after I got my project funded, all of a sudden it, uh, the Deutsche Wohnen and Koenigen happened. So in some sense, I was almost uh, amazed that uh, after I already wrote my research project, I was handed over by, by reality of Berlin. I was handed over a wonderful, beautiful case study that, that is alive and that it's happening as I'm, as I'm researching. So uh, this was also a researcher luck in, in some sense that, uh, that, I, uh, that I got this initiative. And at first I started as a researcher, I, I contacted the movements, I started to attend uh, the meetings, um, also to see, yeah, to, to, to find answers to, to my research questions, how those people handle the law, how they shape the legal debate, how they think about the law, um, the, whole, the whole process, and also this, in, this um, interactions between law and politics both in a big structural sense, but also in this everyday negotiations that happen between the political and the legal level. And uh, because I do have an activist soul and because the more I research the initiative, the more I was convinced by, uh, by the validity and the value of the approach. And also because I am a Berliner myself, I lived here since 2007, I had uh, my own issues with uh, with my landlord, who is not a corporation, by the way. But uh, but I know I know the game. It, it seemed to me that um, it would be it would it would be unthinkable almost not to join in a sense, also to miss this historical opportunity to participate. But also from the sense of duty that certain type of expertise that I, I have also might be useful because I do research on law, because in politics, my, my expertise also might be potentially useful for the movement. So that's, um, that's how I end up in, in this uh, conflation of being a scholar activist uh, in, in this Berlin case. And um, yeah. Johanna, 
thanks very much for that, um, for finishing on that personal note and for uh, the brilliant insights on the Deutsche Wohnen and Co. and Eignen campaign and housing politics uh, more generally. I think uh, we've learned a lot and um, uh, let's hope <laughs> you get the signatures. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.